Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 193, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. An accidental experiment tells us a lot about the effectiveness of pre-K. And why has yoga been banned in Alabama schools for the past three decades? Stay with us. podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, a National Geographic journalist and wildlife biologist joins us to tell us the one thing he'd like to see more of in your science class. everybody, Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am fantastic. We're rounding out the month of May, and I don't want anybody to think that, you know, I count the days down, but this has been a heck of a school year, and we are about to be able to, to say we survived a face-to-face full term of school no one uh, during less the pandemic. No one thinks less of you for doing you know? that. Yeah, not at all. And I mean, and what what teachers accomplished, uh, educators in general accomplished this year was absolutely amazing. I mean, I would say whether you were in a state where you were virtual the whole time and you had to figure that out, or if you were face to face and you had to be brave and, and go into the classroom and figure that out. I mean, it, it's just... And uh, let's not even talk about the teachers that had to do both. Right. There are some districts that didn't put policies in place to protect online learners and teachers had to teach simultaneously. Right. No, that's all valid points. And I think every educator in the country deserves to be counting down the days, um, whether you get out in May or June or or whatever it may be. Um, Kudos to all of you. Uh, Let's see. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, Nothing necessarily COVID related, which I like. I like taking the COVID break. And uh, this one. Kind of a dive in the numbers. Yeah. We're going to talk about a study that um, is being referred to as the accidental study about pre-K. And this is coming up because of um, President Joe Biden's push to actually make universal pre-K, right? You're familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and so I think we've even mentioned it on the podcast. I was unsure about like how many people in the country are actually enrolled in pre-K. And this report that I was reading on NPR actually let us lets us know that um, it looks like nearly half of all three-year-olds and a third of all four-year-olds in the United States were not enrolled in preschool in 2019. So that's so that's you can cool. understand the push to increase enrollment. Right. There was an interesting study done by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and it gives us a glimpse into what the world could look like if we enacted universal pre-K. And the reason we know this is because back in the mid to late 90s, The mayor of Boston, his name was Thomas Menino, he wanted to improve the city's schools. And so one of his big goals was to provide universal full-day kindergarten for Boston kids, all right? So stick with me. Not pre-K, but kindergarten. So the budget was tight, and he got this, like, task force recommendation, and they're like, yes, we can do this, but we are short on resources. So we have to move resources from our city-funded preschool for four-year-olds and move those resources to kindergarten for five-year-olds in order to make this happen. 
So what ended up happening to the pre-K program was fewer slots were available for the city-funded preschools. Are you staying with me? I am. Okay. And so city officials had to figure out, like, how do we fairly divvy up these slots for pre-K now that we have fewer slots? Because we're trying to do this whole kindergarten thing. And so they resorted to a lottery system, and they randomly selected kids who would get in. So mm-hmm. then this these researchers recently came along, and these kids are now in their 20s, and they're like, let's go look at the data, right? Like, this was completely at random, and we have two groups of kids, and we can credibly see how the kids' lives have changed based off of whether or not they got into preschool or not. So then they went and looked at that information. Pretty interesting, right? It is interesting. All right, so stick with me. Here's what they found. The most eye-popping effects of the research find that on high school graduation and college enrollment rates, the kids who got accepted in the preschool ended up having a high school graduation rate of 70%, six percentage points higher than the kids who were denied preschool. Which And those kids actually had a graduation rate of 64%. And then 54% of the preschoolers ended up going to college after they graduated. That was eight percentage points higher than the counterparts who did not go to preschool. Does any of that surprise you? Um, A little bit, because I was expecting there to be a greater disparity. Oh, really? Okay. So you thought it'd be mm-hmm. more so. And, and do you think, uh, I mean, do you think that's a fair evaluation what they're doing. I mean, there's so many other things, right, that can be impacted in a child's life on whether or not they graduate or, or go to college. But I guess since it's at random, I guess it's it's somewhat fair to kind of look at a large sample like this. It is. And really, if you look at some worldwide research, many of the most successful um, school districts or countries, should I say, um, they have a strong foundation for early learning. Mm-hmm. And it's a key move that they made when they went through reforms and restructuring of their schools. So it makes sense. And just with that happenstance research, um, as a principal, I hope that they would expand that and really push and, and pass that universal um, early learning we needed. Right. I think we do. It's a $200 billion investment, I think, is what President Biden's asking for. There's a few more nuggets that have come out of the research, okay? So, intriguingly, while attending preschool at age four had the effects of, you know, actually improving the kids' lives and getting into um, college or, or graduating, there was not an improvement in performance on their standardized test. The researchers concluded that... Um, it's basically that they feel like preschool helps with behavioral and socio-emotional non-cognitive impact, but maybe not so much in actual learning. In other words, like, and, go ahead. Yeah. And of the two, which would have the greater impact on your living um, conditions, your economy, not standardized test scores, but how people enter the workforce and how they enter society. Exactly. And they, they're basically, you know, you're in these settings at an earlier age where you have to follow rules and work with mm-hmm. other people. So I think that kind of makes sense. Teaches collaboration, patience, problem solving, um, none of which, should I say, um, is assessed on our standardized assessments. 
Yeah, no doubt. Uh, the, just the group work, everything. I mean, I've loved watching my kindergartner, and, and she was in, I would call it a private preschool, not like a, a city preschool. But I've, mm-hmm. I've loved watching her get into kindergarten, even in a larger setting, larger classroom, and really kind of growing in those ways mm-hmm. of following rules and having a routine. And I don't know, I just, it's, it's been fun to, to watch that happen. And I think anybody who can do that at an earlier age, that's a good thing. So I have to pose this question. Um, if Biden is successful and we are able to pass universal coverage for um, early learning, what will the state of Mississippi do in regard to kindergarten? Because I'm not sure many people realize it is not required or mandated right now. That That is a legitimate question. Yes. You're basically saying like, all right, so we are basically have the funding for pre-K, but we aren't even mandating kindergarten. So how do we mandate pre-K when we don't mandate kindergarten? Exactly. And then when you do a study like that and you compare children who attended pre-K versus children who went straight into kindergarten, let's think about the fact that oftentimes kindergartners don't show up until October, November, sometimes December, and they've missed the whole first semester of learning. And there's nothing you can say or do because they weren't required to be present. And so let me ask you this, and I know this is not you're looking at big data. Or and I should or say in less affluent areas is where we see this happening. Well, and I, so what do you see happening? Is it just that, that you don't really necessarily see kids not show up to kindergarten at all? You're saying they just kind of come in late whenever they feel like it? Is that kind of happening? Yes. Yes. And I don't have any research to um, to say that there are students not going to kindergarten at all and going straight into um, first grade. Uh, but I have to just tell you the concern we have when kindergartners arrive. And the first thing we do, you know, try to find out if they've had any type of um, early learning. And when they haven't, and then they also arrive to school late, it's already an uphill battle when you begin to think about kindergarten readiness and where you expect a, you know, a kindergarten student to be at the end of the school year. Yeah. And I feel like just, you know, pre-K is so great, you know, universal funded pre-K one, because a lot of families can't afford it. So obviously exactly. that's a plus, but, but two, it's, it's often those kids that maybe you're just being raised by a single mom, don't even have mm-hmm. a sibling. Um, the mom works late, works two jobs, three jobs. And so those parents to no fault of their own, they're just trying to support their family. Don't always have the time to constantly read the books, constantly teach where, you know, if you're in a, a different type of household where you have, you know, both parents there or big brothers and big sisters, it's like Isla's big brother taught her how to do basic algebra the other day. And I was like, that's great. That's awesome. How lucky mm-hmm. am I to have a big brother that was willing to help teach her something? You know, it's just right. not everyone has access to that. And so you miss out on that during those critical years of learning. Well, we also have to think about those children who are in early learning programs that aren't necessarily aligned to um, your Department of Education in each state. Mm -hmm. And so those types of programs focus on learning through play instead of direct literacy instruction. So those children often come to you behind as well. Right. That's a very valid point. Well, let me ask you this one. Have you heard of this? I'm switching gears on you. But um, apparently, I didn't know this until... um, Well, in fact, do you ever see those things like online where it's like, was it uh, Today I Learned, T-I-L? Do you ever see anybody like post that on Twitter? T-I-L, and then they like say (laughs) something. Well, that's good. This week, I was like, T-I-L. I did not realize that Alabama did not allow yoga in their schools. Like they actually had a law. Wait, what? Against, right. <laughs> they had a law against allowing yoga in their school for decades. So do you have any guess as to why there's been a ban for yoga in Alabama schools for 30 years? I can't even begin to imagine what could be their reason. Okay. So apparently Christian conservatives 
who backed the ban, said yoga would open the door for people to be converted to Hinduism. Really? Yeah. Some Somebody in the state, a legislator, finally pushed through this law and got it all with the governor, and she signed it. And the new law allows yoga to be offered as an elective for some grades, K through 12, and it erases that ban that's been in place for 30 years. But um, they still, there, there are some caveats. Students won't be allowed to say namaste, which is like ah. uh, mm-hmm. a certain greeting, I guess. Meditation mm-hmm. is not allowed. Chanting, mantras... Um, well, what confuses me about that is they clearly have not read any of the research on the effectiveness of not mindfulness. We've done these and yeah, th- podcast episodes on that. It's crazy. I don't even understand. But once again, we're talking about people making decisions that, one, are not educators, two, have not served in the schools and are not serving our children. It, it, it's, it just caught me off guard because like, I've applauded on this show schools up, I think it was around um, the Baltimore area, how rather than sending kids straight to detention, they would send them to, like you said, mindfulness rooms yes. and, and where they, they meditate to work and out stretch. out their anger and, and frustration. Yes. And here we are learning that this wouldn't have been allowed in the state of Alabama for the past 30 years. It's quite interesting. It's unreal. And not only that, yoga is also a form of strength training, mm-hmm. you know, which is really important to some athletes. Yeah. No, I mean, I... I guess I've always looked at yoga in that way, in more of a, an exercise way. I, yes. I'm, I'm guessing probably even before my time, 60s, 70s, I'm not sure when yoga was introduced to the United States, if it was way earlier than that. But I, I guess it probably did kind of come through this path of Hinduism and, and maybe had this like hippie type feel to mm-hmm. it. And I guess maybe there could have been some concerns about that. But but it took them to this long to right. figure it out. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, also on that list of things they still can't do is you cannot um, the induction of hypnotic states, which I think I'm OK with. I really don't want my children. I'm OK with that as well. And I, I really want a little understanding. So we're talking about offering these as actual classes, courses, not just during P.E. where they actually do some yoga. You're saying a class that is dedicated to the history and science of yoga? I, I guess. It just says elective, so I don't really know the details. What I'm, I find that to be interesting because I don't know where anywhere around here that it is offered as a course. Yeah, and I, what I really think is that some legislator saw this was a law and was like, this is ridiculous. We need to revisit yeah. this. And then we'll let the K through 12 schools figure out what they want to do with it. But why do we have this in place is, is I think really what it comes down to. Um, and it, you know, obviously generates buzz. And that's ultimately what a lot of the legislators are trying to do. They're trying to generate laws that gets NPR to cover them. So um, it gives them some attention, I think, as a, a lawmaker. So I agree with you. What what <laughs> what is the world coming to? <laughs> are you ready uh, for today's bright idea? I am ready. Maybe there'll be a little yoga involved. (laughs) Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a wildlife biologist who has written 14 books and more than 200 articles, which includes National Geographic coverage that spans 35 years. Doug Chadwick's latest project is his new book, Four-Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that just might save us all. And today, Doug is going to tell us why that perspective should be considered for lessons in the classroom. Doug, such an honor to have you on Class Dismissed. Oh, hey, thank you. First, I want to kind of dive into the title of this book because I think it, it's very important to the conversation we're about to have. Four Fifths a Grizzly. Explain to us why you came up with that title. <laughs> well, first of all, I love grizzly bears. I think I'm, I'm a little bit, I, I, I'd like to say it's because I'm a 
curious scientist. I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours watching them from Alaska to, of all places, the Gobi Desert. And, uh, but the truth is, I think I'm, 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 I'm partly an adrenaline junkie, but I'm partly fascinated by an animal that is indomitably wild and, you know, is so much like us. It's behaviorally complex. It's an omnivore. It can live in all manner of habitats from the mountaintops to the valleys. And uh, it turns out we share between probably 80 to 85% of our genes with this animal. And I also, as a wildlife biologist, I do feel that if you want to understand animals, study them a bit, at least, as though they were people. And if you want to understand people, study them as though they're animals, and they are. And I just want to make sure our audience didn't miss this. You're, you're telling us that me as a human and all of us listening as humans are basically four-fifths the same genes as a grizzly bear. You bet. Um we're, uh, I don't know if people would take this as good news or bad news, but you're also 7% a bacteria. You're 23% a wine grape. Uh, you're 20 some percent a roundworm, 40% an insect, 30% a banana, and 85% for the cow that I'm looking at in the distant field from my, from my house. So most mammals share 80 some percent of our genes. When you get up to our fellow primates, um, most of which in the world now are rare, threatened, or endangered, the, the things most like us, um, and you get to the great apes, then we have a 99% sharing going on with chimpanzees and bonobos, and 98% with gorillas, it's 97 with orangutans. Um, so these are us and we are them to that extent. And so being genetically related to the rest of life, um, you know, it's not just an intellectual exercise. To me, it's deeply meaningful. And, and it explains a lot of where science is going these days. Where One of the most common things I hear, Nick, uh, or read in scientific papers is, a trait formerly thought to be unique to humans. Um, we're opening up to the fact that we are not as separate and special as we like to perceive ourselves sometimes, and the animals are showing us this. And so are the ubiquitous videos and, and um, uh, cameras out there. We're just seeing whole aspects of animal behavior that we have to find a, actually a brand new language for to that incorporates human qualities or qualities we share, but without being anthropocentric or without, you know, turning them into fuzzy little humans. This idea, though, that, that you know, we're, we're the same as, like you said, four-fifths of grizzly bear and, and so on and so on. I mean, you've been writing about the wildlife and, and biology for, for all of your life, mostly, uh, at least 35 years. Yep. And yep. when did you have the epiphany that this idea and this discussion about sharing all these genes with wildlife, whether it's insects or like you said, a grape or, or, or anything, when did you have the epiphany that like, I need to get this out there. I need people to learn to think this way. That's a terrific question because I, I, I have been asking myself that this book just sort of came out and, 
I normally, the last books I've written about, uh, one was on Wolverines and which nobody knows about. So I'm a cheerleader waving my arm saying, we're losing these things in the lower 48. Nobody even knows what they are. And then the last grizzly bears in the Gobi Desert. There are about 30 left in the world. And it, you know, it hit me, I guess just Gosh, I'm, it made me feel like I'm pretty slow. It takes, uh, what do I need? A sledgehammer up alongside the head. Um, I don't have time to write about all the species one by one, all the wild places one by one that need attention and a little more help to, to survive the, the current, um, eight billion people and their activities in the world. And so I thought, I don't know of a bigger subject than what's the nature of nature and what's the nature of nature in us. But I thought, again, until we understand that, then I'm out putting my finger in holes in the dike, as is every other conservationist. And I think we need a much more sweeping um, change in the way we think about ourselves and the importance of nature. You know, that it's not a hobby. It's not a a uh, special interest. It's not a good thing to do because you like um, antiquities or you know any of the other ways we perceive nature as sort of a luxury and feeling as though we're liberated from it and we can do whatever we want as much as we want. Um, until we get past that, then I, I just foresee a, a loss upon loss into the future. And eventually, you know, the degradation of ecosystems or their loss and collapse. And I don't, I don't want to get into an environmental sermon because I think there's a lot of positive things happening. And that was the other reason I wanted to write the book is to say, Hey, here's what works. Not only uh, see yourself differently, but see yourself succeeding in keeping this remarkable living planet we've been gifted with. You're speaking to an audience of educators, and, and I guess we should probably zero in more on the science educators, if anybody. Um, but I guess, help me with the message that you have for them. Is it that, you know, we need to do more than just you know teach about, hey, here is an animal and here are its arms and legs and abdomen and thorax and so forth? It's more that, <laughs> yeah. that we, like, while that's great, but we should also maybe be teaching the fact that we're intertwined with animals and and it sounds funny i mean you, you i could maybe jokingly say like hey man we're all one we're, we're spiritual yeah, yeah. we're connected with animals but this is way more scientific than that is what you're saying this isn't just let's be one with nature this is we we are technically one with nature yeah and and i look i i feel like um a bit of a fraud you know telling science teachers uh, my opinions of, of how to teach I, because I don't have a, any formal teaching background. I'm, I'm just an educator as a writer and a, you know, public speaker and that sort of thing. But I, um, I guess what I would say is that this all started for me when I looked through a microscope when I was about seven or eight and I realized, oh my gosh, um, there's wonder everywhere and the harder you look the more life you find and and so the idea of a living planet um became much more real to me and and it became much more alive um the majority the overwhelming majority of life on earth is invisible that's what i discovered and 
it just changed my my view of the world and it changed it in a very positive way. So um, I would start off talking about or asking the question of what is an individual? Um, what is what is a human made of? And it turns out we're made of a lot more forms of life than we imagine we are. I'm curious, what are we made of? I think you you mentioned earlier we we are somehow similar to a grape. Like, explain that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, I talked about discovering the microbial world and and. You know, the fact that if I go out and take a pinch of soil or a handful of soil in my yard, I've got hundreds of miles of mycorrhizal back, uh, uh, fungi. I've got billions uh, of bacteria and archaea um, of thousands of different species. And, and then I thought, well, what we learn in biology is, is – how does a human develop? And I say, you know, the truth is I was a microbe. I started off at four one thousandths of an inch in size. I was smaller than some bacteria. Um, and that's when I was a fertilized egg, right? And then I went through this miraculous process that involves all 20 to 25,000 genes, 3 billion nucleotide base pairs, and somehow nature having tested this process over approximately 4 billion years is able to come up with a human. I mean, this is miraculous. And I not only started off as a microbe, but I have about 30 trillion human cells. I have more microbial cells in me than that consisting of thousands of species. And most of my DNA is microbial in the sense that I host more DNA from microbes uh, by a factor of like 99%. 1% of the things in my body are human. And, you know, all of a sudden, I start thinking of myself differently. And then I was looking into the origins of the organelles called mitochondria that power all cellular uh, life except uh, bacteria and archaea. And realized that there, you know, it was discovered actually s- several decades ago that these are modified bacteria, just as the chloroplasts that um, photosynthesize and make p- all plant life possible and make our life possible too. They are modified cyanobacteria. So the immediate question is again, are we in, what what is an individual human and what is an individual plant and so i i'm trying to put this in how do you teach this sort of thing and it sounds almost woo woo which is why i think i was surprised about how slowly this kind of revolutionary discoveries how how slowly they've gotten out to the public and into the education system because I think it's 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 so revolutionary it's kind of uncomfortable. Is that part of it? I wish you know I had a teacher to a group of teachers to tell me uh, their thoughts on why this is. But why don't we see things for what they are? 
I mean, I'm, I owe my ability to move and think and, and, you know, every critter out there above the level of a bacterium is a joint venture. It's a partnership. It's a collaboration. It's a symbiosis. It's, it's all these connections that I, I didn't learn about when I went through, uh, biology and wildlife biology. And, I don't see it as a big theme in most of the educational material I see. I, I think one of the key things you said, though, that would register with me, maybe if I was in high school or in biology class, and, and you tried to explain to me that, you know, only, I think you said 1% of me is what makes me a human and, and the rest is sh- <laughs> shared. I think if yeah. if I could, you know, wrap my mind around um, that philosophically, I think I might start to look at things differently as I go forward in life. And, and I think yeah. that's kind of the goal, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, look from the, from the more mystical, uh, like you said, one with all life standpoint, it is a joy to be able to look out at the world and say, you know, I, uh, part of me or part of something I am part of is swimming in the coral reefs, you know, over off the coast of Zanzibar. And part of me is opening my petals to the sun up in the Arctic. And part of me is having a dispute in a monkey, you know, a monkey tribe somewhere up in a rainforest canopy in Central Africa. I mean, I am connected to all life. But again, to understand, should you shouldn't be able to, in my opinion, be able to get through a high school biology class without understanding a heck of a lot more about who you are. And that, say, involves our genetic relationships. It involves our microbes. Our mi- there is a lot more attention to microbiomes, right? People are eating probiotics. Mm-hmm. They understand yeah. that we can't digest things without the help of all these organisms. Uh, medical science is rapidly finding out more about how the balance of, of microbes within us determines not just our health, but our moods, because a lot of these bacteria and archaea produce um, uh, hormones, mood-altering hormones. And, you know, we, there's, a, there's a frontier there. It's exciting. That's, I think that's the main thing any teacher can convey is we don't know the, all the answers, but the more we learn, the more the frontier opens up. And, and there's, a, there's a great wondrous space out there to investigate about this complexity of what goes into the making of a human. And I guess another takeaway for me from just our conversation is that we as humans need to quit looking at ourselves as uh, something separate and something, I mean, we are superior in a lot of ways, but, but we're not the, we're not the all superior being here. And, and I guess, is that, is that the right takeaway? I, well, I think what you're getting at is, I, I don't know. I haven't seen public opinion polls. I think a great majority of people out there still think of, when I say microbes and bacteria and that sort of thing, they're thinking, well, that's germs. And and there's sort of a negative connotation to it. And I think there's a reluctance to embrace what science has been telling us since the 1970s, 1980s about these connections. And you know, it's uncomfortable, but to me, it's, it isn't because it makes us more than human. It makes us, you know, look, I have, 
we're entitled to a very high opinion of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not entitled to considering ourselves as, you know, special and unique at, to the degree that we do. But, but certainly we're, we can say that we're more than human. We're greater than even our, our most inflated opinion of ourselves because we, we are, we are literally you know, tied into, connected to all the rest of life. And again, I come at this as a conservationist too. Like, I don't think there's this urgency to quit denaturing the planet at the pace we are. And and you hear, you know, you, every day each of us gets up and says, you know, what can one person do in a world of 8 billion when you read things like, you know, a news report that there will be as much plastic in the ocean, well, it will outweigh all the fish in the ocean by the year 2050. I admire your approach. Uh, again, the book is Four Fifths a Grizzly. And, and I admire this approach of, you know, let's teach children and, and adults that, you know, yeah, we are we are one. This is nature rather than saying, hey, you need to recycle better or use less plastic. Let's just kind of change how we think of ourselves. And maybe those changes will naturally happen in return. Yeah, that, that, that's the most I could try for in a book without a lot of details. But I did include a couple of, you know, major projects in the world. One with conserving most of the critically endangered species on the planet are on islands because islands are very vulnerable. And and many of our wild places throughout the mainlands, the continents, are becoming islands in a sea of development. And so it puts all these species critically at risk. That's where most extinctions happen and happen fastest is small, vulnerable populations. So large landscape connectivity um, I keep using that word, you know, the connections between us and the life in us and around us, uh, connections between wildlands, the flow of genes across a larger landscape. This is what keeps nature intact. And I think that that was that would be a separate discussion, Nick, but but how do we how do we practically go out and conserve uh, the wildlife that almost everyone, you know, likes and appreciates, but they, we've been going at it species by species, place by place, as I did in my writing. Um, and that won't hold up over time because, you know, these are too small and they're too disconnected. So what's going on is we're fragmenting the habitats and the ecosystems around us. And they are going to fall apart to some extent and the species will be lost, but all it takes is, I, I think, a, a, this fundamental revision of how we view life. It's all justified by science. And I want to put the science out there. So the challenge is, how do you write a book about this stuff without uh, having people interpret it as an environmental sermon? Oh, my gosh, I've seen way too many of those. Uh, or too much geek science to take in all at once. So it's the hardest thing I ever wrote. But um I, I think I got some of it right. I love your approach. Again, it's uh, it's a fascinating uh, perspective. Again, four-fifths, a grizzly, a new perspective on nature that just might save us all. Doug, uh, I appreciate this conversation. I'm going to have to ask another question because uh, it's a little off topic, but I'm just a curious person about what you've done with your life and your career. I need to know, what is it like to be watching a grizzly bear or a wolverine 
from whatever safe distance you deem safe? Like what what's going <laughs> through your mind when you're doing that type of stuff? Um, well, this is why I go to salmon streams. Um, I was at a place called, Mc- well, up in Alaska on the coast. Um, and I was, oh gosh, um, comfortably 30 feet away from thousand pound, you know, bears, uh, that are fishing for salmon. But, you know, you look around and you say there are wolves fishing next to the, to the bears. And there, I've also seen wolves trying to kill bear cubs and, and mother bears trying to kill wolves in, in different settings. But at a salmon stream, it's like a, a Disney special. I mean, it's this peaceable <laughs> kingdom. So I can get rid of the fear and I can just focus on what that animal's doing. And sometimes they would come over as close as, you know, I don't know, eight or 10 feet away because they're curious about us just as we're curious about them. I've had the same thing happen with whales. I had, I've had, you know, 40 ton, 40 foot long humpback whales come over and we're no, we're literally nose to nose underwater. And I, I felt honored that something that big and magnificent was as curious as, about me. Um, I, I, that's like a bug on a leaf saying, oh my gosh, this big human stopped to look at me. How cool is that? <laughs> to get past the fear with grizzlies, I, I'm not, I'm not promoting grizzlies as our big furry friends. I mean, I'm, I hike all the time in grizzly country and I know, uh, under the wrong circumstances, it can go terribly wrong. But again, when you can get past the fear and watch them just going about their lives, you see a whole different animal. And then all the, it makes you realize how much BS there is surrounding the likes of wolverines and grizzlies, which we automatically turn into, you know, mythical monsters and uh, icons of this, that, or the other thing that tell us more about humans than about the animals themselves. It's very, very hard for a human to really see another animal for what it is. It's fascinating, Doug. Again, I could probably talk to you all day about all your experiences. I appreciate you uh, taking the time, though, that you have shared with us here on Class Dismissed. Are you ready for our rapid fire pop quiz ready what happens if i fail do i what's the grading <laughs> it, it system it is impossible to fail so no worries okay uh, i don't have to go sit in a corner or go see the principal or of course something. not okay all right first question Got first it. question if students could only go to school for one subject which subject should it be well natural history what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching the joy of being outside. I, you know, I've, you've probably heard the expression, leave no child inside. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> um, I never fail to have the best time of my life being out with kids. Just, it doesn't matter if you're in a backyard looking at the grass or picking through dirt and looking at worms and, and insect larvae or you're out in a wild place. But I'd say outside, um, the two things, if you can get kids looking through a microscope and you can get them outside, just they've got the energy and curiosity and, and willingness. You, I, I just feel like that's, that's what I would emphasize any way I could. What does every child deserve? <laughs> All that we've been given and, and 
and an appreciation of it. What do you think the biggest challenge is for today's educators? Well, in the, my school district here, we're surrounded by, by wildlands, but it's tremendously difficult to get um, kids out on field trips. To get in touch with nature, you need your hands on it and your feet on the ground. What's the best gift to give an educator? I always thought the gift was seeing those moments when the the wonder and the understand and then the understanding, wonder followed by understanding comes into a child's eyes. Which teacher changed your life? Well, I had a teacher named Mr. Bohannon in grade school. Um, I had a teacher let me out into the field and during high school uh, because I we were lucky enough to have uh, some some good countryside nearby. And then uh, Gordon Oriens, who taught animal behavior at the University of Washington in my undergraduate career, and um, a couple of other teachers that that taught animal behavior and and opened my eyes to the capacities and the full dimensions of animals. Um, so I, I, I was really lucky, and I, I'm sure everybody has who is a naturalist. Look, the the best naturalists I know, Nick, are are, and the best scientists I know are just curious kids. They're all eight to eleven years old, and some part of them right. still still. And last question: pen or pencil? <laughs> um, I got you tickled on that one. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna go for. Uh, uh, cuneiform engraving with a stylus on clay. <laughs> is that what you do? Is that how you take notes when you're in the wilderness? Absolutely. Very efficient. You know, if you, as long as you can carry a hundred pound pack. Uh, again, uh, you're listening to uh, our friend Doug Chadwick, whose uh, recent book has just come out. It is titled Four Fifths a Grizzly, A New Perspective on Nature That Just Might Save Us All. Doug, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. Well, thanks for thanks for that, and thanks for those thanks for those good questions. I'm, I gave lousy answers, but now I get to think about them when I uh, when we sign off. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>